chapter 1, Zechariah chapter 1. Last Lord's Day we looked at the first part of chapter 1. We're going to begin our reading this morning in verse number 7, and then read through to the end of this, well, read through to verse number 17 of this particular chapter. But Zechariah chapter 1, and we'll begin our reading in verse number 1. Upon the four and twentieth day of the eleventh month, which is the month Thebat, in the second year of Darius came the word of the Lord unto Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo, the prophet, saying, I saw by night, and behold, a man riding upon a red horse. And he stood among the myrtle trees that were in the bottom, and behind him were there red horses, speckled and white. Then said I, O my Lord, what are these? And the angel that talked with me said unto me, I will show thee what these be. And the man that stood among the myrtle trees answered and said, These are they whom the Lord hath sent to walk to and fro through the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord that stood among the myrtle trees and said, we have walked to and fro through the earth, and behold, all the earth sitteth still and is at rest. Then the angel of the Lord answered and said, O Lord of hosts, how long wilt thou not have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah, against which thou hast had indignation these three score and ten years? And the Lord answered the angel that talked with me with good words and comfortable words. So the angel that communed with me said unto me, Cry thou, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with a great jealousy, and I am very sore displeased with the heathen that are at ease, for I was but a little displeased, and they helped forward the affliction. Therefore thus saith the Lord, I am returned to Jerusalem with mercies. My house shall be built in it, saith the Lord of hosts, and a line shall be stretched forth upon Jerusalem. Cry yet, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, My cities through prosperity shall yet be spread abroad, and the Lord shall yet comfort Zion, and shall yet choose Jerusalem. Amen. We'll end our Bible reading there at the end of uh, verse number 17, the end of Zechariah's first vision. And let's seek the Lord in prayer this morning as we come to his word. Let's pray. Our Father, we do ask now that as we have our Bibles open before us that we would know your help in not only the preaching of your word, but help in hearing and receiving your word this morning. We pray that you would give us all hearing ears, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. I think many of you already know about me that I am not really a big fan of watching the evening news, but that does not necessarily mean that I try to live with my head stuck in the sand or try in any way to be oblivious to what's going on in the world. You know as well as I do 
that we live in a very troubled world. There's chaos all around us, and there has always been chaos all around us. It just changes really from one chaotic event to another. The title of my message this morning, for those of you who might be prone to take notes, the title of my message is, What in the World is Going On? What in the World is Going On? And I want to take some time this morning to consider the truth of Zacharias' first vision and consider that question with you. What in the world is going on? This morning we're coming to the first of a series of eight visions that the Lord gave to the prophet Zechariah. Uh, we understand from the dating and, and how he introduces each of these visions that they all happened in one night. I don't think Zechariah got very much sleep that night. Uh, bombarded, if you will, with vision after vision after vision and this accompanying angel that was talking to him and him trying to understand what do these things mean and receiving an explanation and an interpretation of these various visions. But before we get into the heart and, and the substance of this vision itself, I want to kind of step aside for a moment and explain some things to you about the nature of visions and also about the nature of this type of biblical literature to help us all in our understanding of how to interpret such things, how to read and understand such things from the Bible. Uh, first of all, ab about visions, there's a difference in Scripture between a vision and a dream. Uh, I think you all know your Bible well enough to readily call to mind sometimes where there are some who had visions and others who had dreams. And maybe you've wondered, what is the difference in these things? Well, generally speaking, this is not an airtight classification, but generally speaking, visions are given to those that are spiritually mature. And so you see the prophets in Scripture, those that God had set aside as preachers of his word, those with a spiritual maturity about them. The Lord gave to them visions. Abraham, for example, received a vision. Jacob, when he was older in life, received a vision, the prophet's visions. When it comes to dreams, dreams we see in Scripture were given to those who were spiritually immature or to those who were not followers of the Lord at all. So, for example, we read of Abimelech, the, the leader of Egypt. Abimelech was spoken to by the Lord in a dream. Joseph, when he was very young, received a dream. And, and that's why we say a, a level of spiritual immaturity, because what Joseph did with that dream, went and bragging to his brothers and etc., was not the wisest move on Joseph's part. And so that's why we use that language of a little bit of a spiritual immaturity. Jacob, early in his life, had a dream. Later, after the Lord had dealt with him and matured him, Later, he had a vision. Um, Nebuchadnezzar, you remember in the book of Daniel, had dreams. And so there's, there's something of a difference between visions and dreams, but a vision was one of the ways that God communicated truth to his servants in the Old Testament. But it's not exclusively to the Old Testament because 
we come to the New Testament, and you remember Peter had a vision. You remember the cloth that was down, and the Lord told Peter, rise and eat. The Macedonian call, when that man from Macedonia appeared to Paul, he appeared to Paul in a vision. And Peter and Paul, at this point in their ministries, were a level of great spiritual maturity. And the Lord communicated to his servants in that way. Another thing we need to understand, especially as we read this, and and we're going to go through some of the other visions of Zechariah, is understanding the type of literature that we're reading. I don't want to get too technical and too bogged down in some of this, but there's a difference we need to understand in what we call apocalyptic literature and literature that is in the Bible that is allegorical. You take, for example, the Song of Solomon. I view Song of Solomon as something of an allegory. We interpret Song of Solomon differently than we interpret the first four chapters of Genesis, which is just a historical narrative telling us the facts of what happened. We don't interpret those two passages the same way. When we come to apocalyptic literature and allegorical literature, we also need to be careful how we interpret these things. In an allegory, every detail, every character, and, and from some perspective, every nuance has its own significance, its own meaning. And so you're all very well, very well aware of the book Pilgrim's Progress. And so in Pilgrim's Progress, it's an allegory. And so you look at the names of the different characters, and those names mean something. So there's Christian, there's worldly wise man, there's evangelist, there's giant despair, and then there's places. Right? The whole book is along a pathway that indicates for us the pathway of, of the Christian. There's the wicked gate, there's the burden on his back, there's all these things. There's the slough of despond. There's the the city of Vanity Fair, and there's significance in all the little details. Well, when we come to allegorical-type literature, we don't have the same burden of trying to understand what every single tit-for-tat thing means. And so the fact that this man is on a red horse, we don't need to go nuts and try to figure out, well, what does what's the point of red? And then that there's white horses and speckled horses and other red horses behind this main guy on a red horse. We don't need to go nuts and try to figure out all the colors. We don't necessarily need to try to figure out, well, why were there only three? What does that mean? We don't have the same burden of interpretation. We have more of the plain, main message that is communicated. Now, that's not to say that there's not symbolism in some of those details, but in apocalyptic literature, we don't have the same burden of interpretation of trying to figure out numerology and colorology, if that's a thing, and and all those kinds of things. Now, I'm going to point out some things that are very specific and I think very instructive for us in some of the symbolism, but... At the same time, we don't need to bog down ourselves with those. So having said all those things, let's look at the substance of this first vision of Zechariah. We see, first of all, this man riding on a red horse. 
This man is standing, it says, or I think it's very reasonable for us to understand standing even in that sense of he's sitting on his horse, right? Maybe he's standing next to his horse, but there's a man who's riding a horse and he's there among these myrtle trees. Now in verse number eight, you'll notice the place. He's standing in this forest of myrtle trees in the bottom. We're going to look at that word bottom here in in just a moment. I don't want to undo everything that I just said about being bogged down in the details of the vision, but there are some significant things for us to pick up on here. Now, the myrtle tree, this is not like the great myrtles that we have around that you know we trim and cut off that we have growing uh, around this area, but the myrtle tree is a shady evergreen tree that would have been very, very common in and around Jerusalem. Ezra tells us that this myrtle tree was used by the children of Israel during what's called the Feast of Booths. Now, in the Bible, it's referred to as a booth. If we saw the thing, we would call it a tent, a Feast of Tents. But what it was is a feast that the children of Israel were to participate in every year that reminded them of the wilderness wanderings. And so during that time of the feast, they they didn't sleep in their house. They slept in their booth. Um, but those booths were to be constructed from the branches from these myrtle trees. Well, this vision also happened at night. And the man on the red horse would have been there under the shadow of these shade trees. The myrtle tree was a shade tree, an evergreen shade tree. And so this was a very dark place in this vision. He was in the bottom. We'll look at that here in just a minute. But he was in a dark place. It was a dark place in the vision. And then spiritually speaking for the children of Israel, it was a dark place for them in their experience. As this remnant was back in Jerusalem seeking to rebuild the temple and seeking to reestablish the worship of God. And they'd been there for 18 to 20 years and not much progress had been made and there was a lot of discouragement among the people. And so here is kind of the setting of this vision. But this word bottom is something that I think we need to pay careful careful attention to as well. If you happen to have in your lap an ESV, you'll see that that word is translated as glen. Uh, I don't know, maybe if someone has an NIV or a New American Standard, they translate that word as ravine. The New King James translates that word as hollow. Now, all of those translations, and I would submit even the translation that we have in the King James, they're not the best. The King James probably has has interpreted this word the best way for us by using this word bottom. But this word occurs 12 times in the Old Testament. 11 of those 12 times, it is used to refer to the depth of the sea. The other 11 times, it's it's referring to the depth of the sea. And it's most often translated with exactly those words, the depth of the sea. This, in Zechariah 1.8, is really the only time that it's not translated that way. And the King James translators have chosen this word, bottom. I think their translation does communicate, really, the essence of what is going on here. 
Let, let me show you how this word is used. It, it's most often used figuratively. Sometimes it, it is used in a literal sense of the depth of the sea, the, the deep part of the ocean. But more often than not, it's, it's a figurative word. It occurs in Jonah chapter 2. Jonah praying, he says to the Lord, for thou hast cast me into the deep. That, that's the word. Uh, into the deep in the midst of the seas. And the floods compassed me about, all thy billows and thy waves passed over me. And so in Jonah, Jonah identifies himself as being in this place. What, what Zechariah is translated as the bottom, in Jonah is translated as the deep. Micah 7, verse 19, he will not, I'm sorry, he will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities, and thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Depths, that's the word, and, and here it's used in a figurative sense, of all of our sins cast into the deepest part of the ocean, a part that's not accessible, a part that nobody can get to. That's the idea. Far, far away, forgotten. Psalm 68, verse 22, I will bring my people again from the depths of the sea. Again, the same word, the same figurative imagery of the Lord's people being in a very low place and the Lord bringing them, rescuing them out of this very low place. And I think that's what we're to understand in Zechariah 1 and verse number 8. Where this vision occurred, yes, it occurred in a valley. Yes, it occurred in a ravine. But it, it occurred, if you will, in the lowest place. It, it occurred for Israel in a low place for them spiritually. It, it occurred for them in their darkest hour, if you will. And I think it's significant for us to understand that this man riding on this red horse, this man who later is identified as the angel of the Lord, he shows up to the Lord's people in a dark place, in their darkest hour. And he comes to them, as we'll learn later, with very comforting words. You see, Zechariah had already told the people, the verse that we considered last week, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Turn ye unto me, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will turn unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. This man on the red horse is the angel of the Lord. We'll, we'll look at that more fully in just a moment, but to cut to the chase, he's a pre-incarnate appearing of Jesus Christ. He comes in the midst of his people in their darkest hour, if you will. The Lord shows up. There's a lot going on in the world today. In many ways, nothing changes from one generation to the next because there's always been a lot going on in the world today. Those of us that are older can just remember more of the things that are going on in the world today. Some of you young people are just coming to an age of understanding and realizing some of the things that are going on in the world today. And you'll, you'll form your, your memories of some catastrophes of history. If we went around the room, we could all, well, us older folks, you know, some of you can tell me exactly where you were when you heard that Kennedy got shot. 
I'm old enough to remember exactly where I was when the Challenger blew up. I knew exactly where I was when not, you know, the events of 9-11 became you know, real. We, we remember some of these major world events, some of these catastrophic events of history. We've lived through these things. There's trouble in the world. There's trouble in the church. The church has always faced persecution and hardship. But I would submit to you that all along the way, the Lord has always been there in the midst of his people to comfort them, to draw near to them, and to be their help. So I want to take some time this morning and consider the truth of Zechariah's vision and look at it from the perspective of this question. What in the world is going on? What in the world is going on? And I want you to see from this vision, first of all, that God knows exactly what is going on. That's the first thing I want you to see from this vision. God knows exactly what is going on. See, Zechariah saw this man riding on this red horse. Well, behind him were other riders on other horses, red ones and white ones and speckled ones and you know, all these other horses, all these other riders. The imagery that we have here is of uh, uh, an army, of, of an infantry, of, of horse cavalry if, cav- cavalry, if you will. And this man on the red horse, the leader of them all, the, the captain of the whole thing, standing there among the myrtle trees. But verse 11 identifies him as the angel of the Lord, this pre-incarnate appearing of Jesus Christ. But here is the one who is the defender and the representative of his people. And the angel of the Lord is a prominent theme in the Old Testament. He is the one that in the fullness of time will come as the Redeemer of God's elect. This is who the angel of the Lord is. It's Christ pre-incarnate. But when you study that theme of the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, it's as if the Lord can't stay away. In Genesis 3.15, God promised that he would come. God promised he would send this Redeemer. And it's as if, if Christ wanted to come so often, And you'll find very strategic points in Israel's history where, if I can say this as reverently as possible, the angel of the Lord pokes into time and intervenes on behalf of the Lord's people in miraculous ways sometimes to to help them in their time of trouble. It was this angel of the Lord that Adam and Eve walked with in the cool of the day in the garden. It was the angel of the Lord that appeared to Abraham in his tent door and told Abraham that your wife is going to bear a son and in according to the time of life, in nine months, I'll be back. The angel of the Lord was the one that brought that message. The angel of the Lord was the one that appeared to Moses at the burning bush when Balaam was trying to rebuke the children of Israel and and curse them, it was the angel of the Lord that stood with his sword drawn that Balaam didn't see, but the donkey saw and the donkey donkey spoke to Balaam. Well, that was the angel of the Lord that was there as as a mighty warrior. When Joshua needed great encouragement for the battle, it was the captain of the Lord's host. He was the angel of the Lord 
who appeared as a, a mighty captain, a mighty war hero. The angel of the Lord was the one that appeared to Samson's parents to foretell, foretell them of the birth of Samson and the destruction of the Philistines. The angel of the Lord appeared to Elijah to strengthen him for the journey. And then we read in 2 Kings 19 when Hezekiah and his men were attacked by Sennacherib. Hezekiah prays to the Lord, and it was the angel of the Lord that at night went to the battlefield and slew 185,000 of Sennacherib's soldiers. So that when Hezekiah's soldiers got to the battlefield the next day, they found 185,000 bodies dead. The angel of the Lord came and, and slew them all. And so this is the same angel of the Lord that has appeared to Zechariah in this time. And so over and over again in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord revealed himself as a mighty champion, as a mighty hero for his people to defend them, to comfort them. And this is the same one who later, as I said before, in the fullness of time, would come to save his people from their sins. But we see the angel of the Lord here in Zechariah as a man on a mission. And he's got other angels with him, riding on these other horses. And they're on a mission. And we learn of that mission in verse number 11. We have walked to and fro throughout the earth. And behold, all the earth sitteth still and is at rest. And so they give their report of what they found. They've, they've as it were, accomplished their mission. You know, God doesn't need to send messengers to find out what's going on in the world. God knows what's going on in the world. But this is, in, in biblical language, what we refer to as a anthropomorphism. God is speaking to us in such a way that we can understand. God knows intuitively what's happening in the world. But here he uses the language and he, he shows Zechariah something that he can relate to, something that he can understand, because in the ancient Near East, all the cities of the Near East, they had reporting messengers. Way before we had you know, the Pony Express, they had substantively the same kind of thing. Messengers that would go from city to city and report news. Scouts that would go out and they would survey the land. They would survey a battlefield. They would survey an opposing army and come back and bring a report. This is kind of language that all the people would have been very, very familiar with. And so the Lord communicates in this language for the people to understand. The Lord is saying, I know what's going on. I know everything that's happening. And so God is saying that he's inspected the whole world, but he's found a problem. And here's the problem. The end of verse number 11. All the earth sitteth still and is at rest. Now, most would read that and think, well, what's wrong with that? I mean, is that not a good thing? Peace on earth? Everyone's sitting still? Everyone is at rest? But if you look down at verse number 15, you'll see that this is not a good thing at all. Because in verse 15, the Lord says, I am very sore displeased with the heathen that are at ease. 
And so this was the report. This is what they found. They found them all at rest and at ease. And the Lord says, I'm upset with that. It's not a good thing. God was angry that the earth was at rest and at ease. See, God's inspection found that the heathen, he, I'm sorry, God's inspection found the heathen in this spirit of complacency and apathy concerning the kingdom of God. There was a complacency and an apathy that had set in to the world. And further than that, while God found the heathen at rest in complacency and apathy, he found his own people in great trouble and great turmoil. The children of Israel were not at ease and at rest. They were the ones having problems. And the rest of the earth seemed to be okay. But remember, we're looking at this from the perspective of God knows exactly what is going on. None of the troubles that we face today have caught God by surprise. The Lord is constantly doing this inspecting work. He's constantly inspecting everything that's going on. He has his finger on the pulse of all of the world's affairs. And he knows everything that's going on way better than we do. We know what's going on, but we don't know why a lot of these things are going on. We have our conjecture, we have our conspiracy theories, and all the rest of it as to why it's going on. We think we know answers to some of these things. But God knows what's going on. God has actually ordained all that is going on. God is ruling and reigning over everything that is going on. And so none of the troubles we face today have caught God by surprise at all. I think there's something else we can pick up from this vision. The idea that these riders are on horseback, I think it speaks to us something of the quickness of God's inspection. The fact that there are many riders, I think, speaks to us something of the thoroughness of God's inspection. As if not one stone was left unturned. God had looked everywhere. He knew everything that was going on. Nothing escaped his attention. He knows what's going on. So how does this vision from 2,500 years ago affect us? Well, one of the answers to that question is that God still knows what's going on. There's no news headline that has ever kept God up at night. There, there's no phone call from a doctor that's ever caused God to worry. He knows everything. God knows everything that happens behind closed doors. He knows all of your marriage fights. He knows all of the arguments that you have with your children. He knows every tear that you have shed for a wayward child. He knows every tear that falls on your pillow from praying for a lost loved one. He knows all the problems you have at work. He knows all of that. Nothing escapes his attention. God knows about all the opposition to his kingdom. He keeps tabs on everything, and nothing goes unnoticed. He knows about every cup of cold water that you've given in the name of the Lord. He knows all of those secret ways 
that you have ministered in the Lord's kingdom, not for any recognition at all, but just because you love the Lord and you want to serve Him and you, you want to be behind the scenes. You don't want anybody to say your name from a pulpit that you did this, that, or the other thing. You don't want any pat on the back. God knows all that. God knows every prayer that has been offered. God knows everything. And so when we say what in the world is going on, well, we can be comforted very much that God knows what is going on. But I want to move on secondly in this vision to consider another thing. Not only does God know what is going on, but God cares about what's going on. He cares about what's going on. His knowledge does not make him indifferent. And his knowledge does not make him complacent or apathetic at all. God knows and he cares. Look with me at verse number 14 and 15. Verse 14 says, So the angel that communed with me said unto me, Cry thou, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with a great jealousy. And I am very sore displeased with the heathen that are at ease, for I was but a little displeased, and they helped forward the affliction. I want you to see here, first of all, that God's care is seen in his jealousy for his people. In verse number 14, it says, I am jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with a great jealousy. His care is seen in his jealousy for his people. One writer said that in the Old Testament, God's jealousy is but the intolerance and the intolerance of rivalry or unfaithfulness. God is jealous for his people. That is, he's intolerant of any rival in your heart. He's, he's jealous of any unfaithfulness on your part toward him. God's jealousy really is a display of his holy and righteous love. He's jealous for us because he loves us. I think the best illustration of this for us is marriage love the love that husbands and wives are supposed to have for one another. There's supposed to be a, a right kind of jealousy in that love. My jealousy for Lydia makes me want to protect her. I'm, I'm jealous for her, and that jealousy makes me want to provide for her. That jealousy makes me want to keep intruders out of our relationship. And so I want to protect our relationship because I'm jealous for her. I don't want other people comforting her and her finding consolation in others that is supposed to be in her husband. There is an intimacy of love that is only appropriate between a husband and a wife. And there's a jealousy to protect that. That's the kind of, of jealousy that God speaks of here. And God's jealousy causes him to act in love and care for his people. But God's care is also seen in his displeasure with the wicked. Look at verse number 15. I am very sore displeased with the heathen. Very sore displeased with the heathen. You remember last week when we were looking at the earlier part of Zechariah 1, 
in verse number 2, we read there, the Lord hath been sore displeased with your fathers. This is how Zechariah opens his sermon. The Lord has been very displeased with your fathers. Well, that displeasure that the Lord had with his people is different from the displeasure that the Lord is talking about here in verse number 15. Look at the, look at the rest of verse number 15, the last part of it. He says there, For I was but a little displeased, and they helped forward the affliction. Perhaps it's a little bit confusing as to what is being said there, but the idea is that the Lord was displeased with his people for a little while. He punished them. That punishment was for 70 years. God had told through the prophet Isaiah, God had told through the prophet Jeremiah, and for that matter, the Lord warned the people through Moses. If you disobey, if you follow in the way of the heathen, then I'm going to send the heathen, and you're going to be dispersed, you're going to be taken out of your own land, this is going to be taken away from you, you're going to be in captivity. The Lord had told the children of Israel all these things were going to happen. And the Lord was displeased with them. And the Lord did have to punish them. But he didn't cast them away. He wasn't off with them. It was a punishment. And it was for a little while. But what the end of verse number 15 is saying, and they, that is the, the heathen, they helped forward the affliction. As if the heathen nations made things worse. The heathen went far beyond what God intended. Be careful using this language. I hope you understand what I'm saying. God used the heathen to punish his people. But in arrogance and in, in wickedness and with evil intent, the heathen had in mind to annihilate the people of God. God never had annihilation of his people in view because God had entered into a covenant relationship with his people. God loved them. Even when he punished them, he loved them. We punish our children. We, we discipline them. We spank them. We, we take something away from them. We, we ground them, whatever you call it. But we love them. And why do we punish them? We punish them because we love them. But we don't disown them. We don't kick them to the curb. No, we want restoration. And this is what God was doing in the exile, in that punishment, but the heathen, they wanted more. They wanted to destroy the people of God. But God never let them go as far as they would have desired. God held them back and God restrained them. And God preserved his people, ultimately for them to be able to go back to the land. You know, it may seem as if the wickedness of, of wicked men goes unchecked. But it really doesn't. It really doesn't. From our perspective, it seems that way sometimes. Asaph really paints a crystal clear picture for us of this in Psalm 73, when he says, For I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He goes on later to say, They are not in trouble as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. You look at the wicked and they seem to prosper. They seem to have everything going for them. You look at the people of God and, man, they're struggling. They're having a hard time. 
verse 12 of Psalm 73. Behold, these are the ungodly who prosper in the world. They increase in riches. Verily, I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocency. He's saying, in essence, you know, these people have it so good. Why have I wasted my time trying to live like a Christian? It's getting me nowhere. I just join forces with them because they're the ones that seem to be prospering so well. And he goes on in verse 16. Asaph says, when I thought to know this, it was too painful for me. You, know, you get your mind focused on all that and you just may as well give up. It's hopeless if that's all you're thinking about. If that's where your mind is, if that's where you're set. And so, you know, he says in essence, and at the point of giving up, why well, struggle trying to walk with the Lord when I could just cast in with these guys and be prosperous? But then in verse 17, Asaph realized how foolish his thinking was when he got a clear sight of the Lord. And listen to what he says starting in verse 17 of Psalm 73. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood I therein. And now he has a whole change of perspective. Verse 18, Surely thou didst set them in slippery places. Thou cast them down into destruction. How are they brought into desolation as in a moment they are utterly consumed with terrors? You see, the Lord in his sovereignty, he raised up the heathen nations to punish the children of Israel. He delivered the children of Israel. And then he punished the heathen nations for afflicting his people. He punished the heathen for their wickedness, for their crimes, for their murder, for their sin. Make no mistake about it at all. God will destroy the wicked, and he will preserve the righteous. He will do that. He will, he will destroy the wicked. He will preserve the righteous. The Bible tells us he is, he is angry at the wicked every day. He's angry at the wicked, and he will punish them. They will be destroyed. And if you think casting your lot in with them is going to get you to a place of prosperity, you're horribly mistaken. You're horribly wrong. Cast your lot with the Lord's people. They're the ones that will be preserved. They're the ones that will fare well in the end. And so God's care about what's going on is seen in the fact that he's jealous for his people. It's seen in the fact that he is displeased with the wicked. God cares about what's going on. But I want you to see another thing here, and that is God's care is seen in his impatient cry for the Lord to work. His impatient cry for the Lord to work. Look with me at verse number 12. It's, it's somewhat difficult in this vision. This, there's different characters. There's God the Father who is not there on scene. We've got the angel of the Lord, the second person of the Trinity. He's there on scene. There's an angel standing next to Zechariah that's talking. One of the other writers gives a report to the angel of the Lord. And so in some ways it's difficult to keep track of exactly who's talking when and, and who's, who's listening and who's being talked to. But if we can sort all this out, let's look at verse number 12. Then the angel of the Lord answered and said, O Lord of hosts, and so now we have the angel of the Lord is addressing the Lord of hosts. And so you see in your Bible, both of these are all capital letters. They're all Jehovah. This is not the Lord talking to himself, although it is the Lord 
talking to himself. But remember, there are three persons in the Godhead. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. These three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. But the angel of the Lord is God the Son, speaking to the Lord of hosts, which here is God the Father. And look at what he says. How long wilt thou not have mercy on Jerusalem? How long? How long is it going to be? How long? And and there's this impatient cry for the Lord to begin to work and to move on behalf of his people. And who is crying this? It's the angel of the Lord. And so here we have a, a holy conversation between God the Son and God the Father. And God the Son is already doing that intercessory, mediatorial work on behalf of his people, crying out, how long is it going to be until you come and you rescue Jerusalem? You said it was going to be 70 years. You said 70 years. How long is it going to be? This is the cry of Christ in concern for the welfare of his people. Say, God knows what's going on, but God cares about what's going on. And here we see the care of Christ for his people. This is the same person of the Godhead that's going to bow and weep in the Garden of Gethsemane. And in John 17 is going to offer up that high priestly prayer on behalf of his people. This is the same person of the Trinity that we see praying in Zechariah, that we see praying in John 17. And this is the same one who later will lay down his life for his people. It's the same person pleading and crying out, an impatient cry for the Lord to work. And he wants to know how long. You know, you never in Scripture find any of the Lord's servants asking the Lord to slow down. You don't see that. I would encourage you to do a little study in the Psalms. Nine times in the Psalms, you have one of the psalmists crying out, How long, O Lord? Other times in the Psalms, you have the psalmist using this language, Make haste, O Lord. Make haste to deliver me. Here we have a window into divine intercession. Christ expressing his care for his people. God knows and God cares. He cares about all your struggles. He cares about all your problems. He cares about all your tears. He cares about all your fears. He he knows them all and he cares about them all. So we see that God knows what's going on. God cares about what's going on. But I want you to see lastly this morning, God will change what is going on. God will change what is going on. Look at verse number 13. And the Lord answered the angel that talked with me with good words and comfortable words. He's here for encouragement. This angel of the Lord is here to encourage his people. Verse 16, Therefore thus saith the Lord, I am returned to Jerusalem with mercies, Here's what's going to happen. My house shall be built in it, saith the Lord of hosts, and a line shall be stretched forth upon Jerusalem. Cry yet, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, My cities 
through prosperity shall yet be spared abroad, and the Lord shall yet comfort Zion, and shall yet choose Jerusalem. God had punished Israel, for sure, but he wasn't finished with them. He wasn't finished with them. He hadn't cast them away. And in verse 16 and 17, the Lord promises five things that he's going to change. He promises, first of all, he says, my house shall be built. Well, they'd been there for 18 or 20 years so far, this remnant. They'd laid a foundation. Others had come and they'd seen this foundation. Some of the older folks were weeping because, man, this foundation was really small compared to the old one. The, the younger people were just thrilled to death that something was being done, that the worship of God was going to be reestablished. And we read in Scripture that there was crying and there was laughing. And when you heard the noise, you couldn't tell the difference between who was crying and who was laughing. But yet Haggai, turn over just probably a page in your Bible backwards, Haggai 2, in verse number 9, you'll hear the Lord says, my house is going to be built. It's going to be finished. And Haggai says, the, Haggai 2, 9, the glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former, saith the Lord of hosts. And in this place will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. There will be real peace. The glory of this latter house is going to be better. Why? Because that house that was being built, that, that Zerubbabel was overseeing, that, that temple was going to be the very temple that later Christ would enter into. It was that temple that Christ would preach from. So the glory of that temple was far better. And here's the Lord's promise. Here's the Lord changing what's going on. What's going on wasn't much. But the Lord says, no, my house is going to be built. It's going to be established. A second thing is promised. A line shall be stretched upon Jerusalem. In chapter 2, we'll look at the, the, that this evening. Zechariah had two more visions. We, uh, a vision from verses 18 to 21 at the end of chapter 1 and then a vision in chapter 2, and I'll explain more of the connection of all that tonight. But in this third vision that we have in chapter 2, we see this man with a measuring line, only to find out that his tape measure is not big enough. Because Jerusalem is going to be so big, it's going to be a city without walls, we learn. And so God's going to come, and he's going to measure the city, and he, he's going to find blessing and expansion that's so large that it's not describable anymore. Ultimately, this speaks to us of the advancement of his church, not, not necessarily a geographic region of Jerusalem that you can find on Google Maps, but this is a promise of the advancement and, and the spread of the church of Jesus Christ. A third promise he gives, my cities through prosperity shall yet spread, be spread abroad. Still, this promise of Christ to build his church. And the size of it, as we'll see tonight, the size of it is larger than anything the Jews of Zechariah's day could ever imagine would take place. It will be a kingdom that will be composed of people from every kindred, tongue, tribe, and nation. It will be a kingdom of 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. An innumerable host and company will make up this kingdom. And so through prosperity, it will spread abroad. And then he gives the promise that the Lord shall yet comfort Zion. Ultimately, this is the promise of the coming of Christ, the incarnation, the, the Emmanuel promise 
of Christ being with his people. And, and Christ won't have to come in disguise, as it were, as the angel of the Lord. But in the fullness of time, he'll be born of a woman. He'll be born under the law. He'll, he'll take to himself human flesh. He'll take to himself the form of a servant. And will live among men. He will be bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh. Perhaps, I don't, I'm not going to be dogmatic on this, um, but just that word comfort it triggers uh, the promise of the comforter, the Holy Spirit that's to come. Perhaps there's something of that in the promise. The Lord come to comfort his people. He did in the incarnation with Christ, but Christ left the comforter for us to continue on comforting us, his people. And then he says, the Lord shall yet choose Jerusalem. This is no doubt a renewal of God's electing love for his people. A renewal of that love. None of God's people have ever been lost. None of them have ever been cast away. For a time they've been punished. From, for a time from the Lord's people's perspective, God was distant. God was far away. God was not near. God had punished them. As we saw some last week, the Lord had withheld blessing from them. As part of that punishment, the Lord had not allowed them to prosper, even to the point we saw their, their crops weren't growing the way that they normally would, their, their animals weren't breeding the way that they normally would, and all this was part of, of God's punishment on them. But the Lord says, all that's going to go away, and it's going to be manifest to everybody that these are my people, that I love them, that I have chosen them, that they're mine. And it's the Lord promising the renewal of this covenant love and this covenant faithfulness that he had. And so we saw last week the Lord promised to turn to his people. We saw that in verse number 3. Turn unto me, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will turn unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. Well, if you look at verse number 7, this first vision came in the 11th month. Zechariah's first sermon was in the 8th month. And so he gave that call to repentance, that call to turn to the Lord. And it's three months later, he has this vision. Now, we're not told, we're not told explicitly in Scripture what happened during those three months. But I think we have every reason to, to understand and every reason to assume, especially from what we read in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, that there was a turning to the Lord. There was a repentance of the remnant people. They did humble themselves and turn to God. And what did God do but keep his promise? And the Lord turned to them through Zechariah in this vision, but then, then later in more practical and tangible ways as Ezra and Nehemiah described the, the aftermath of what happened in the temple actually being built and the Lord protecting them from their enemies and so on. Next Lord's Day morning, we're going to look at the fourth vision. Zechariah chapter 3, in that vision, the Lord continues to display his promise of turning to his people. In that vision, he's going to remove all their iniquities. All their sins are going to be gone. And he's going to show them a, a picture, an illustration of what that looks like, of the filthiness of their garments taken away and them being clothed with garments that are spotless and white. This is just more of God keeping his promise of, of turning to his people. God's not ignorant about what's going on in the world today. 
He's not ignorant about what happens in your house. He's not ignorant about what happens when your door is closed. He's not ignorant about what happens in your heart or any of the stuff that runs through your mind. He knows all about it. He not only knows about it, but he cares about it. And even greater than that, the Lord will change it. The Lord will make all the wrongs right in his time. May we seek him for that change. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we do thank you that you are a God who keeps your promises to your people. That you, you told the people, turn unto me, and I will, return, I will turn to you. We thank you that we see that on display in this vision. That you know all the troubles of your people. You care for them. You display that care. You're jealous for them. You destroy the wicked. You punish those that come against your people. We thank you that you have promised to continue to be with us through the promise of the Holy Spirit. We pray that you'll bless these words to each of our hearts today. We pray that you'll bring us back again this evening to hear your word again. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.